All right, so tonight I'm going to, we've been doing sort of a survey, stopping briefly in each chapter, and I'll do that a little bit at the beginning here. Um, But what I want to focus on is this story with Balaam and Balak, because I think it's a fascinating uh, story, and it can reveal uh, some interesting things to us. And you probably have a lot of questions about that story or, or wondering, like, so what do you take away from this? What's the, what's the application of this story with Balaam and Balak? Um, so let me just kind of briefly catch us up, and then we'll, we'll spend some time in 22 through 24, which is where that, that story happens. So uh, chapters 18 and 19 um, are more law-oriented. Chapter 18 talks about some, uh, it kind of clarifies the Levitical duties, um, but it's in light of what has just happened. So what what happened in chapter 17, well, what happened in chapter 16 was the the Korah's rebellion, and it's really a series of several rebellions uh, that happen, and God answers that by what in chapter 17? What's his response when, when all the dust settles and the, the ground has stopped swallowing people? What, what, does he, what does he do to sort of reestablish his authority? You remember? No? Yeah, he, he has the tribes bring a staff and it's Aaron's staff that buds, signifying this is the anointed, these are my designated leaders, Right? Um, that staff, by the way, eventually makes it into the Ark of the Covenant, which is a, a fascinating thing. It contains the, uh, the tablets of the commandments and Aaron's staff that budded and some manna. It's a very symbolic things that are contained in the Ark of the Covenant. Um, it also clarifies the, uh, so it clarifies those Levitical duties. People are afraid. They say, we can't approach God. You know, we're, we're afraid of dying if we get close to the, to the tent. I mean, God certainly... The, the body count is getting kind of high due to these rebellions. And so God says, all right, here's some, I'm going to clarify the Levitical duties so that we can kind of manage and, and, and mediate the relationship between God and man because it's not in the best place right now. Um, also talks about just the, the fact that the Levites didn't have an inheritance in the land. They weren't going to be given an allotment of land. It says that the Lord is their portion, which is really interesting. I think that, that we as the priesthood of God, the kingdom of priests, um, ultimately don't have an earthly inheritance. We have an, the, the Lord himself is our inheritance. And obviously we have a land that we are to possess. But I love, I love, those, uh, I love thinking about how the, the Levites were to glory in their portion, which was the Lord. Um, and I just, I, I like that a lot. Um, so then in chapter 20, there's the story of Moses and the rock. And I, I sadly am not going to spend a lot of time on this tonight. Other than to say that um, at, first, at first blush, you don't really realize that anything wrong has happened until you go back and see that Moses didn't really do exactly what God told him to do in the way that he told him to do it, all right? And I think that's important, and that's going to be important in the story of Balaam as well. But there's a subtlety of disobedience. Um, God says, do this, and Moses essentially achieves the ends that God was pointing toward, which was water coming out of the rock and people being... uh, that their thirst being quenched and water being provided for the whole people. 
achieving the ends, but not exactly by the, the, the precise means that God had prescribed. And uh, God gets angry with Moses. And Moses seems to have done it out of frustration, right? He, he tells him, here now, you rebels, you know, <laughs> and then strikes the rock twice when he was just supposed to speak to the rock. And uh, God says, you, you have not glorified me, you have not sanctified me in the presence of Israel. In other words, you became the center of attention here. Right? You were not supposed to be the center of attention in the water being given to the people. This was to, be, to glorify me and to, to let the people know that I am their provider. But you made it about your own beef with the people. And that, that cannot be. Right? And they, they had, he had gotten in between um, the people and, and the, the lesson that God wanted to give them. So then chapter 20 ends with um, this interesting portion where Edom, which is the descendants of the people of Esau, the the descendants of Esau. um, Here we see them again. Much later, they've grown into their own nation and they're still at odds odds with each other. And it's sort of a sad passage because you see many, 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 many years later, the consequence of the fallout between Jacob and Esau. Um, and there's sort of a, uh, uh, let me turn there. It's kind of a tragic line at the end of the chapter. Um, or at the end of that section. Verse 21 of chapter 20, it says, Thus Edom refused to give Israel passage through his border, wherefore Israel turned away from him. And they, they live separate from each other. Um, and then Aaron is called up to a mountain and Aaron ends up dying uh, at the end of chapter 20. Um, and so that gets us to chapter 21, which is um, full of several other smaller stories. There's a victory, uh, strangely enough, there's a victory over Arad and the, and the Canaanites. Um, and then there's the story with the fiery serpents, which was one of my favorite stories as a kid. And it, it um, this was like the first big Bible study I did. I was wondering why, uh, this was, a, I was young, I think I was, I was less than 10 years old. But I asked my dad one time, why do ambulances have a snake on a pole on them? Do you, do you realize that? That every ambulance has a snake on a pole? And dad was like, huh. And so he was able to show me the story. But John, um, John 3, right? We know John 3, 16. But John 3, 15 talks about these, this serpent that was lifted up. For as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Um, and then it says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So that was fascinating to me to see, number one, that here's a symbol of Jesus, pretty much, the healing power of Jesus that, dry, that, that is the first on, every, <laughs> first on the scene. That's pretty powerful. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Um, but to see how Jesus was that snake in the wilderness and to see how in, in the Old Testament there's a pre, sort of a type of Jesus, and uh, that kind of opened my mind uh, a long time ago. Um, and then at the end of chapter 21, there are two 
more victories over pagan kings. Um, Sihon, the king of the Amorites, and Og, the king of Bashan. And actually, as we keep going through the story, those become uh, like chapter headings. Whenever, whenever you hear the story of the Israelites recounted in the Psalms or in the prophets, it always mentions Sihon and Og. You know, it's interesting, especially when we get to De- Deuteronomy, when Moses is retelling the journeys to catch, to catch everyone up. Um, he always mentions Sihon and Og. And it's interesting because this is what they were supposed to be doing to the inhabitants of the promised land. But here they are wandering out around in the wilderness. And still, even though God's angry with them, he still lets them experience victory. Right? This is how it could be. This is how it is when you're walking with me. And this is, this is a demonstration of my power. So he even lets them experience and taste some of that victory uh, over the enemies of God, uh, even though they are to, to eventually die in the wilderness. Okay, so that brings us up to chapter 22 and the bulk of what we want to talk about tonight. Um, chapter 21 is really a, a, travel, a travel story. So it just gives a couple snapshots on the way from Kadesh to Moab. And on the plains of Moab is where we finish out the book, right? Their, their journeys have taken them from Sinai to Kadesh and eventually to Moab. And Moab's really on the border of Canaan. So uh, here we are on the plains of Moab. They, uh, it says, The children of Israel set forward and pitched in the plains of Moab on this side, Jordan, by Jericho. And Balak, the son of Zippor, saw, that, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites. Right, so because of these two victories that they have just won, their reputation is spreading. Okay? And Moab was sore afraid of the people because they were many. And uh, the language that's used here makes Moab and Balak really a type of Egypt and Pharaoh. Some of the same things that Pharaoh says are things that Balak says about the Israelites. Moab said unto the elders of Midian, now shall, this country, now shall this company lick up all that are around us as the ox licketh up the grass of the field. And Balak, the son of Zippor, was king of the Moabites at that time. He sent messengers, therefore, unto Balaam, the son of Beor, uh, to Pethor, which is by the river of the land of the children of his people, to call him, saying, Behold, there is a people come out from Egypt. Behold, they cover the face of the earth, and they abide over against me. Come now, therefore, I pray thee, curse me this people, for they are too mighty for me. And this is exactly what Pharaoh says. Hey, they're going to get too mighty for us. We need to do some population control. And so Balak is a type of Pharaoh. He wants to, he sees this people growing. He knows their strength. What are we going to do? How are we going to secure the borders? And so he, he calls this guy Balaam, who was apparent, evidently a, a seer or a prophet, had a conversational relationship with who he calls the Yahweh, my God, which is very interesting. God has relationships with people that aren't just in, 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 among the Israelites. He is dealing with everyone. And you see this many times in the Old Testament where God's speaking to a foreign king. You know, they have some sort of sense of who this God is. All right, so um, a lot of people knew who Yahweh was. And the, the, really the gospel that Israel was to proclaim wasn't, hey, God exists, believe in him. 
That wasn't what, what God wanted them to... Everyone, you know, it wouldn't be hard to convince someone, hey, there's this, there's this God, Yahweh. Okay, great. Good for you. <laughs> we've got Baal over here, and we've got this God and this God. Their gospel was, hey, this Yahweh is the God. It's what we call monotheism, and that was the radical contribution of Israel to the, the theology of the, of the surrounding countries. This God is the God. All right, so Moab says, hey, this, this people, they have something going on. We've heard about what happened in Egypt, right? So they have this reputation. There's this story that has gone out. There's a people that came out of Egypt. How do they manage that, right? And this God, there's a God that's with them. Now, Balaam um, has this relationship with God, and, and Balak apparently knows it. And so Balak wants to pay him for his services and get him to curse the people, <laughs> Hey, let's see if we can curse the people by this God that apparently they serve and you know him. Um, come curse the people. Now, if you just read this story, you would kind of feel bad for Balaam. If you just read chapters 22, 23, and 24, it's like, okay, well, he was trying to do what God told him to do, and he knew that he couldn't curse the people. Um, it's helpful going in to read what the New Testament says about Balaam, which was that he was greedy. That was his error, all right? Um, and that helps us as we read through this because we begin to understand some of the things that made God angry about Balaam. All right, so the story opens up, and uh, they have this exchange, and, and the, the princes from Balak come and, and try and convince uh, Balaam to come and they give him, they offer him money and stuff, and he refuses. Uh, they send him again, and Balaam says, um, or the story says this. Uh, let's see. They came to Balaam and said to him, Thus saith Balak the son of Zippor, Let nothing, I pray thee, hinder thee from coming unto me, for I will promote thee unto very great honor. And I will do whatsoever thou sayest unto me. Come therefore, I pray thee, curse this people. And Balaam answered and said unto the servants of Balak, If Balak would give me his house full of silver and gold, I cannot go beyond the word of the Lord my God to do less or more. Now therefore, I pray you, tarry ye also here this night, that I may know what the Lord will say unto me more. And this is what I'm sure a lot of people have questions about. And God came unto Balaam at night and said unto him, If the men come to call thee, rise up and go with them. But yet the word which I shall say unto thee, that shalt thou do. And Balaam rose up in the morning and saddled his ass. This is a great story to be in the King James in. Um, and went with the princes of Moab. And God's anger was kindled because he went. But I thought God told him to go. What's going on here? Okay. First of all, I'd say that this is not the first time God has done something like this. Okay. You remember when Moses set out from Midian to go back to Egypt. It says the Lord met him on the way and sought to put him to death. And luckily his wife comes and there's the strange circumcision scene and she touches his feet with the, the blood and something is atoned for and it changes. There, there was something undone. He had set off without having circumcised his son. And that, that angered God. Well, here we see, so it wasn't just, 
a lot of people would read that and say, it just seems random. God just got angry at, at nothing. Well, it wasn't nothing. All right, Moses probably should have known that him, as the deliverer of the, the people of God, should probably <laughs> circumcise his son, right? After all, of the, after all of that, and this is the sign, the seal of God's people, it just it, it hadn't been done yet, right? It was an oversight. And here, I believe, it's the same thing, and, and, and it can be very subtle, all right? Moses has just gotten in trouble for subtly disobeying the commands of God, essentially doing what God said, but in his own way, all right? Now, listen to what, you may have missed this, but this made sense to me this week, uh, the more I was studying. God said, came unto Balaam at night and said unto him, if the men come to call thee, rise up and go with them. Okay, that's what God said. If the men come, rise up and go with them. All we hear about what Balaam did, it says, and Balaam rose up in the morning and went. We don't hear that the people came. See that? So what I think is happening here, and there are other people have tried to explain this in different ways, but what makes, sense, what makes the most sense to me is that um, Balaam appears very ready to go. And that's what displeases God. And it's not like God's trying to trick him or test him. If the people came, God was going to say go. Perhaps God knew that they weren't going to come. But when Balaam, when Balaam gets up in the morning and he's ready to go, God says, I don't know if you really heard me. I think you were just waiting for me to say something that would let you go. Does that make sense? This is like, and, I, and any parents in the room know this, okay? You know when your kid really wants to obey you, and you know when your kid really just wants what they want. And you can tell by the way that they obey you. Um, can we go outside and play? You have to clean your room first. Um, what follows is usually, you know, not a very good job, right? Or, hey, so-and-so is here. We, they want us to come play. Well, you didn't clean your room first. <sighs> All right, we're done. We can go play. Right? They don't really want to obey and clean their room or else they would have done a better job, right? What they really want is to get this over with as quick as we can so that we can go do what we really want to do. And this is, I think, what, what, what God is seeing in Balaam's heart. Does he really want to please God, or does he just understand the rules and understand what God wants, but doesn't really want to please him, all right? His readiness to go implicates him before God, his quickness to, to just go. Well, God said we can go. N- not quite, right? He said if the men come, then rise up and go. Um, and I think that's an important omission, Right? God gave three things, three stipulations. If they sit, if they come, rise up and go. All we hear about what he did was he rose up and went. So there's a quickness and a readiness to go. He knows the rules. He knows the limits. He knows God's power, but he jumps at the chance. As soon as God gives him a little sliver of a window, he, he's off. And that, I believe, is what kindles God's anger. It's, it's what's in his heart, right? And, and it, the New Testament tells us 
He's driven by greed. Greed is a heart set on getting this thing no matter how I need to. I will, I'll obey whatever rule I'll have to obey in order to get this thing. You see, that, that's not real obedience. That's greed. That's covetousness. So he's, he wants to go. And that's what God is angry at. He wants to go. And as soon as God, as soon as God gives him any indication that, okay, go, he's off. He doesn't really want to obey God. Or else he wouldn't have asked him a second time. God says, no, don't go. What they really, but they really want me to go out there and play with them. Well, clean your room first. God, he said I could go. No, he said go clean your room first. Well, yeah, but I'm not going to do Yeah. You see, where, you see the, the idea here? All right. So this, this wouldn't be the first time in Scripture or even in the book of Numbers that a very subtle disobedience reveals what's really in someone's heart and kindles God's anger. Right? All right. So then there's the story of the donkey. So he gets up, he, he saddles his donkey, and he goes. Um, and uh, I realize this for the first time. You know, there's a lot of symbolism in this story. You have to believe that when a story slows down this much and gives this much detail, that it's trying to say some things, right? It's, it's more than just the literal story. When, whenever the Old Testament... Because the Old Testament is notoriously terse in the way that it provides details, right? You can read a novel and there's like, it's, and then the grass was this color and the sky and they felt like this and there's all these details. But the Old Testament is just, the details that are there mean something, right? It's very terse, very compact. And so this story takes up relatively a a lot of space, right? And there's this whole three... uh, Three, time, three things that the donkey does and three things that, the, that Balaam does to the donkey. And so it's a very symbolic story. Um, to make a long explanation short, what I think is happening here is that we are seeing the donkey as a figure of the position that Balaam is in. Caught between... So the, the donkey gets, is caught between seeing the angel of God and, oh, I can't do that. But my, my master is also hitting me with a stick. <laughs> I'm caught between the angel of the Lord and my master's anger. This is a picture of Balaam. He's caught between what he knows is right and the pressure that, that Balak and the deal that he's trying to strike. You see that? And how can you do both? Right? And, what he, and the story makes it clear that Balaam does not see, he does not really see the angel of the Lord. And he's sort of just blindly going, going on with one thing. So Balaam, uh, the donkey really represents what Balaam's uh, situation is. He's caught between Balak's demands and the word of God. And he doesn't know what to do. There's this tension. He doesn't know how to handle it. Um, the donkey ends up, it even says... He, goes, he, he, he smashes him up against a wall and he breaks his foot. There's this, this pressure and it's, it's crippling Balaam. These two competing desires in his life. Ultimately, he's trying to have, and through the whole story, and this is why I think he's, he's denounced in, in the New Testament, he's trying to have both Balak's reward 
and remain obedient to God. Okay? Um, and I, I actually think it's a story about how no man can serve two masters. Right? Matthew 6.24 says, No man can serve two masters. Either he will love the one and hate the other, or he will despise the one and love the other. You cannot serve, what, both God and money. Balaam is caught between God and money. And Balak's offer is an offer he can't refuse. But he knows who God is, and he knows that he, he knows the limits that he's working within. But he does not abandon Balak. He still keeps him hanging around there. He couldn't see the angel on the way, even though his donkey could. He couldn't see the angel. It says God opened his eyes. But I don't think Balak, Balaam really wanted to see. And that's what God is trying to teach him. You don't really want to know why you shouldn't go. You're just trying to figure out a way that you can go and kind of still respect me. So he still does honor God, right? And he says, no, I can't, I can't curse these people. He said, you know, all the three oracles that he gives are pretty awesome. You know, they're, they're very prophetic and they're, they're right on, right? So his prophecies are right on. He's honoring God and uh, he's not giving in to Balak's demands to curse the people, okay? Um, so there's those three oracles. And then there's actually a fourth oracle where he gives a messianic prophecy, so Balaam really did see things in the spirit and he understood who the people of God were. He understood who God was, that he alone was God. He understood all those things about God. But he still wanted, if I can, I need to get something out of this. Right? We don't know the rest of the Balaam story. So it ends up, he, he, he goes and then there's the, the ceremonies with the seven altars and the the bull and the, the ram at each altar. And um, they do that twice. And then he lifts up his eyes to the wilderness and gives another prophecy. Um, and it ends sort of on a positive note. At the end of chapter 24, it says, And he took up his parable and said, Alas, who shall live when God doeth this? And ships shall come from the, the coast of Shittim, and shall afflict Ashur, and shall afflict Eber, and he shall also perish forever. So he's basically just prophesied the destruction, eventually, of, of the pagan nations. And Balaam rose up and went and returned to his place, and Balak also went his way. And we don't hear anything else. We don't hear that Balaam eventually uh, took a reward. But in chapter 31, we hear the rest of the story. Okay, so there's this gap, there's this silence. That's all we see. And I think that, that that's on purpose, that we don't know the rest of the story until later. Because I think that what's, what that's telling us is that this was a backroom deal. That somehow in between these oracles and him returning home, that there was some sort of under the table deal that went on or conversation that was had that we didn't see. All right. And here's what it says in chapter 31. Uh, chapter thirteen or thirty one verse thirteen. And Moses and Eleazar the priest and all the princes of the congregation went forth to meet them without the camp. And Moses was wroth with the officers of the host, with the captains over the thousands and of the captains over hundreds, which came from the battle. 
they're going and, and dest- uh, destroying the Midianites. Um, chapter 31 is about God telling them to go and avenge the Midianites. Um, I skipped over 25. We'll, we'll come back to that. But here's what happened, and here's why uh, they are avenging the Midianites. Um, he says, And Moses said unto them, Have you saved all the women alive? Behold, these caused the children of Israel through the counsel of Balaam to trespass against the Lord in the matter of Peor. And there was a plague among the congregation of the Lord. Now, therefore, kill every male among the little ones and kill every woman. Basically, utter destruction. Okay? So Balaam gave Balak some sort of counsel, some sort of way that he could uh, gain mastery over the people of God. And the counsel was this. You can't curse the people of God. The only people who can curse the people of God or bring a curse on the people of God is themselves. And so you can't, I can't curse them, but I can tell you how you can get them to curse themselves. And so they go and seduce them with these women and cause them to commit sexual immorality and idolatry. Things which would bring a curse on the people of God. And it did. All right, so this is what Balaam, this is what he eventually ended up doing. They worked out some sort of deal, and he said, I got to tell you, I know how that they can be cursed. I can't curse them. But if you get them to do X, Y, and Z, they're going to bring a curse on themselves, and they're going to be there vulnerable and you'll be able to go in, swoop in, and get it. So this is what ends up happening. Chapter 25. It's really a, an unsettling chapter in many ways. Um, there's no way, to, there's no way to, to... I mean, you can't soften this for your children. <laughs> it's just like, it's very stark, right? Um, Israel abode in Shittim, and the people began to commit whoredom with the daughters of Moab. So Balaam goes away. The next thing we see is the people beginning to commit whoredom with the daughters of Moab. Balak knew something. Balaam tipped him off about something. And they called the people unto the sacrifices of their gods, and the people did eat and bowed down to their gods. And Israel joined himself unto Baal. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. Verse 6, And behold, one of the children of Israel came and brought unto his brethren a Midianitish woman in the sight of Moses and in the sight of all the congregation of the children of Israel who were weeping before the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And then Phinehas rises up and he slays these, these adulterers. But the story fills out this fact, that this guy was a leader. And this woman was a leader. She was a daughter of a head of a tribe. This was like a political alliance thing that was happening. They, the, the nation was in peril. And it wasn't just that, hey, some people are beginning to commit adultery. It's that the leaders are, are joining themselves together by marriage. Israel truly is, Balak's authority is really coming and encroaching upon the people of God. Right? What, it, 
that sexual immorality was bad, but it was also politically driven sexual immorality that was exposing them to occupation and, and to being conquered and occupied by the Moabites. And this is why Phineas rises up, and it's those two people symbolically, these heads of their families, this political marriage, he throws a spear through both of them. And Phineas, fun fact, (laughs) is the only other person besides Abraham that it says about them that something was credited to them as righteousness. It says about Abraham's faith, I think it's in Psalm 106, maybe. It says about Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness, and Phineas's zeal was credited to him as righteousness. This is what God, and it's interesting in this story that Moses is relatively passive. God keeps having to tell Moses what to do. He doesn't have to tell Phineas what to do. <laughs> and Phineas is the, is the hero of this story. When the time comes... Drastic measures need to be made. And it wasn't just a random act of, of violence. This was a strategic alliance that was happening. This was a very bad thing for Israel that he stopped. And he stopped not only a plague of the Lord's anger, but he stopped some major uh, crippling of, of the nation that was going to happen as a result of this alliance. And we know this because the story goes into great detail. The man's name was this, of the household of this, a leader of their tribe. The woman's name was this, uh, of the leader of her clan. And these clans were coming together through this union. So then the Lord says, vex the Midianites and smite them. You can't beat the King James. For they vex you with their wiles. Wherewith they have beguiled you in the matter of Peor, in the matter of Cosby, the daughter of the prince of Midian, their sister, which was slain in the day for the pla- uh, which was slain in the day of the plague for Peor's sake. So, um, so I'm going to give you three takeaways from from this story. One is Balaam himself. All right. Sometimes. <laughs> And especially when it comes to obeying God, there's not a win-win. Sorry, Stephen Covey. That's one of the seven habits of highly effective people. Think win-win. Balaam was trying to think win-win. Obey God and get paid. I can obey God. All I got to do is they just want me to go here and just, all right, well, we can do both. You can't. You can't serve God and money. You can't do the godly thing and the profitable thing. You got to pick one. Or else you're going to be like his donkey who's in the way and there's the, where, there's the road, but over here Balak is beating me. Where am I going to go? I can't go forward. I can't go to the side. I'm just here being beat and, and, and lying down on the road. God looks at Balaam and he says, your way is perverse before me. Just as the donkey kept swerving out of the way and going back and forth. That was a picture of Balaam. The donkey's way was perverse. It didn't know where it was going and it was caught between a rock and a hard place. Balaam's greed put him between a rock and a hard place and his way was perverse before the Lord. He also knew how to say the right things about God and he knew a lot of the right things about God. Prophetically, powerfully, In visions, 
But still deep down in his heart, he thought that he could preserve this opportunity. So what we need to take away from this is that even though we can say and know all the right things about God, even though we are given to his rules, if there's something deep down we really, 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 really want, we're going to be waiting for anything that might sound like, yeah, you can have that thing, and then we're off to get it. Okay, those are the real legalists. The ones who just wait for anything that sounds remotely like, oh, you can have that thing that your heart really wants. Right? This is tricky. We can, we can shove those things down and say all the right things for a long time. But ultimately, we're going to find ourselves between a rock and a hard place. And we're going to end up crippled or just laying down the road, <laughs> being beat by that desire. And we don't know how to go forward to God or escape this rock. We're just going to be there. The law of God is, is threatening my life, and this thing that has, has mastery over me is beating me. What am I going to do? And a lot of people find themselves in this position. They want to please God, but there's this thing too, <laughs> and it ends up just beating them. That's deep. Is that good? Does that get you? It gets me. But there are those things. What is it that I really want? Am I greedy? Is my heart's desire the glory of God? Or do I really think that there's something about my life that I want to preserve and I just really hope God doesn't get around to that thing? All right. Jesus said we cannot serve two masters. The donkey was caught between two masters. And that's, that was, that's where Balaam was. Um, this, is, this is the problem with the American gospel. It's that you've got all these desires and life has gotten on top of you. Hey, Jesus can take care of those obstacles to your desires and here we go, right? You can have what you want. Now the obstacles are removed. That's not what Jesus did. He said, whoever seeks to save his life is going to lose it. If you try and preserve your life and Balaam was trying to preserve something about this relationship with Balak, this, this means of income, it's not going to work. Uh, Balak, this is the second takeaway, Balak. In Balak, we can really see how the, how the devil works, how spiritual warfare, the dynamic of spiritual warfare, right? Satan's afraid of us. And he knows that we have power over him, okay? So he's going to do everything in his, in his bag of tricks to try and get us at any angle, and so Balak had heard, wow, this people's really good. They're, they're, they're going to become too mighty for me. You need to know that you have an enemy that's scared of where you're headed and wants to bring a curse on your life. He can't, but he wants to. And the way he's going to do it is to try and get you to choose, because you, you can't be cursed, but you, can, you cannot just be point blank commandeered by the power of the devil. But you can open the gate and let him in by your choices. And this is, this is the, the, the wiles of the devil. He did not openly assault Israel. No, he was around the fringes consulting with people who knew how, who knew how to worm their way in and had all the subtle tricks figured out and, and was executing those. 
And this is what's going on all around us, whether we realize it or not. If one scheme doesn't work, he's going to move on to the next one. And he'll try another and try another. He'll keep trying to get in the door. He'll keep trying all the doors and windows to see if there's one unlocked. That's what happens. Um, if one king gets defeated, I mean, Israel's walking, Og went down, Bashan went down, Moab found a way, found a way in. Okay? One victory, two victories doesn't guarantee victory for life. We have to maintain vigilance. During the party, we've got to watch the back door. Okay? This, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 10. Take heed. Let him that thinketh he stand, take heed lest he fall. This is one of the lessons we're to bring. There's always a king out there scheming. There's always a, a, an enemy that wants to suppress us and, and trip us up. Letting him in is our choice. He can't curse us. He can't force his way in. We can allow him in. And that's the way Satan comes into our lives. Our choices are the gate to the power of Satan in our lives. Uh, the, the children of Israel opened them up, opened themselves up to uh, the curse. And, uh, and that, that was a, tra- a tragedy. All right, the third thing is all through this story, you don't hear much from Israel. And this is the, this is the point. God was protecting them and fighting for them. What is Israel doing? They're wandering in the wilderness. <laughs> They're wandering in the wilderness. They're being punished. They're in time out. All right? And they think God hates them. Right? They're accusing you. You hate us. You brought us out here to kill us. Okay? So God's on that front. But back here, he's protecting them. He's refusing to curse his people. Right? He's telling Balaam, there's no way. I am not going to curse. These are my blessed Children. So you see both aspects of God. Here, with his kids, he's chastising them. But behind the scenes, he's fighting for them. And he's protecting them. And he's covering them in the wilderness. Um, God never stopped being faithful to his people. Right? His chastisement was, was no indication of his abandonment of his people. He is still very active protecting them and, and letting... All the world know that this is my people. Okay? Um, so I think that's important. You, we, we, get into, we, we get into wilderness situations in our life. And it feels like us, we're being abandoned by God. But, but that's, not, that's not the case. You always need to know that out there in the spiritual realm, God, if Jesus, the New Testament says, ever lives to intercede on our behalf. That's always true, no matter how much chastisement the Lord is, is <laughs> placing in your life. No matter how much brokenness he's working in your heart. Jesus is interceding on your behalf before the Father. And we can always know that. And I don't think Israel had a clue. They had no idea what was going on with Balaam and Balak. They had no idea that these people were scheming at how to bring a curse on them. They were just out there winning some battles, losing other battles, and getting eaten by fiery serpents, and still cursing God, and just waiting to die there in the wilderness. But God was still protecting them. I think that's awesome. Um, 
All right. Well, any, uh, any burning questions that you had that didn't quite get addressed? I'd be happy to take a stab at anything. Mm-hmm. Moses' father-in-law. And so his wife is Midianite. And he kind of takes her in, right? And yeah. like, so their kids are taken in under the circumcision and like Yeah. Um, and so that's why it's different. Correct? And it's not like a like this story is talking about, you know, it's kind of like you're saying a political thing. Like mm-hmm. Two people are uniting in maybe Trying to kind of make a whole new people group that's not going to be underneath what he's doing. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's. Um, I have to go and look at the different. Uh, it, it may be. I don't know if the Midianites here were the same as the ones that Moses had family ties with. Um, I don't know if that's an actual clan, like the Midianites, or it's just the people who dwelt in, in Midian at that point. Does that make sense? Um, so I'm not sure. I'm not sure what the what the connection is there between Moses' adopted family, <laughs> his his shepherd family, and uh, the Midianites here that that God tells him to go in and, and wipe out. I do know that when we get to Joshua, that. Uh, Rahab is a, I mean, she's a prostitute and she's a a Gentile and she gets covered and and welcomed in, even though Jericho is going to be destroyed. So there would be definitely precedent for, for what you're talking about. Like there, there are exceptions of people and all through the old Testament, this is true that there are, there are places in the old Testament where people really do acknowledge God as, as God. And we see sort of a foretaste of what God was wanting all along that th- that my nation would be a blessing to all the nations, and that all the nations would come to the mountain of the Lord and say, "Yeah, this is the God." I mean, that's that's the ultimate purpose of God. Um, so yeah, there are glimpses of that. I'm not sure if this is one, but it wouldn't be out of the question. So yeah. Amen. Any Annabelle questions? I like Annabelle questions. Like you answered mine, I was like, yes. like why Balak was like getting like the angel of the Lord thing because like I was like, well, God told me to go, but yeah. like that got Yeah, yeah. Something about the way he went, maybe it was how quick he was to go, God didn't like. Yeah. 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 There's just so much detail and like do this and do this and yeah. do on the third day and seventh day. Is there anything within that that like a little nugget of you know something? Are you talking in like chapters eighteen? Eighteen. Eighteen, nineteen. Um there are nuggets. I don't have any for you though. Chick-fil-A has good nuggets. <laughs> Maybe go read your Bible at Chick-fil-A and you'll get some nuggets. 
<laughs> no, I, there are. I, uh, I just, to, yeah. As I was reading it, trying to go reason for For sure, yeah. Do you have any nuggets? No. No? Okay. Anybody have any nuggets? <laughs> Yeah, there's the red, the red heifer, um, that ceremony. I didn't dig into that this time around. I, I, was, I was focused more on Balaam this week. Um, but yeah, the, the, the thing about in chapter 18, about them, there are some alterations to the duties of the Levites that are subtle. But those are in light of the recent rebellion that has gone on. And there's... There's some redefining and kind of clarifying the role of the Levites uh, during that time. So I know that's, that's, that's one thing, that God, the way that he told them to function in the tabernacle was not one way for all time. He was continually tweaking the way that they went about their duties in the tabernacle based on where they were in their, in their level of maturity with him. So for a time, the people were like scared of coming to the tabernacle, and so he makes some adjustments. So I think one nugget there would be that God was continually, um, not in a negative sense, but he was continually condescending to the people and, and trying to meet them where they were as much as, as much as he could while maintaining his holiness. He makes a lot of concessions. Um, and I think anywhere you see something that the people did and so God tweaks something in the, in the, in the uh, rituals or the kind of the, the activity of the tabernacle, he's, he wants to be with them. He wants to maintain his ability to, to be with them as their God. Does that make sense? So it, I think the little, the subtle differences that he makes and, and the clarifications that he makes later on, and there's a lot in Deuteronomy where he fills out some of the heart behind the laws. Um, those, are very, those are very important to look at. He'll give a, a brief law in Exodus but in Deuteronomy, the same law is given, and, he'll, and it'll say something like, for the Lord your God is this way and this way, you know. And you, you understand, oh, I see the heart of God behind this law. Um, I'm looking forward to that in Deuteronomy. But I think here, in Numbers especially, since there's just story, then seemingly random group of laws, those laws have something to do with God. All right, this is where you are. Here's how we're going to relate. All right, here's this stipulation. Here's this stipulation. I'm trying, to, I'm trying to maintain the relationship here. We're trying to work on this. Okay? I'm trying to stay connected. I'm trying to let you stay connected with me. So he's just continually working with them. Sometimes loosening laws. Sometimes strengthening laws. Uh, making it more strict. Depending on whatever the, the wisdom of the Father thought best. I have a question. So yes. Yeah. Yes. But he wasn't like an Israelite who didn't feel like Moses who like the Lord's Right. Yeah. So I mean, does he just have that gifting and he's just using it for other things? Like how like that's I don't know. I mean I think the 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 only conclusion we can really make is that evidently God had pretty close relationships with non-Israelites. That there were, that there were prophets, that there were 
people sensitive to the supernatural realm in a real way, not just in a fake way, you know, that we would consider today, you know, some palm reader or whatever, but they actually, and this is where, like, to our modern minds, that seems weird, but it wasn't, we're the, historically, we are the odd ones where we're skeptical about the supernatural world. There was no skepticism about the supernatural world in any of this, right? So it wouldn't have been shocking to meet a seer who talks to dead people. Oh, yeah, okay. Thomas had hit, you know? <laughs> I find it interesting, too, like, uh, that connection doesn't make him good. I thought that was... Yeah. It doesn't make him good. And right. Uh, it's neutral. I, de- I default to you in my head. Yeah. Somebody is uh, able to have, like, a gift of prophecy. Yes. good. Right. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, he was... His character was compromised. He had... I mean, we've seen that Moses said, would that all the people were prophets and the spirit was on them. This is what God, this, we, this is great. And here's a prophet who really knows God and his heart's full of greed and he ends up, he ends up ruining it. Yeah. I wanted to read. Uh, I forgot. I wanted to read just the, the the few New Testament scriptures that mention Balaam. So one's in Second Peter two, verse fifteen. Uh, Having eyes full of adultery, and that cannot cease from sin, beguiling unstable souls and heart, they have exercised with covetous practices, cursed children, which have forsaken the right way. There's that idea of the way of the road. God says, Balaam's, your way is perverse before me. Who have forsaken the right way and gone astray, following the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. Who loved the wages of unrighteousness, but was rebuked for his iniquity. The dumb ass, speaking with a man's voice, forbade the madness of the prophet. Um, so it was, the, it was the greed that ultimately was behind God's anger. I see your heart. I, I know why you were so quick to go. <laughs> right. uh, Jude, verse 11. It's a similar verse. 2 Peter and Jude are very similar books. Woe to them, for they have gone in the way of Cain and ran greedily after the error of Balaam for reward and perished in the gainsaying of Korah. Um, so it's denouncing these, the people who have crept in the church. In Jude, it says, who pervert the grace of God into sensuality. Right? That's trying to have your cake and eat it too. Grace, and I still get to do what I want. No, that's a perversion. That's a perverse way. That was, that was Balaam's perversion. Right? Um, and then Revelation 2. All very close books to each other. Interesting in the New Testament. Um, Revelation 2, I forgot the verse. Anyone know the verse? 14. 14, yeah. I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them, thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit fornication. Right? So Balaam taught Balak to
to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel. Um, basically, yeah, get them to open up. God clearly spells out the ways that they can curse themselves <laughs> in the law. If you do this, you're going to be cursed. Just get them to do that. And you, you won't have to curse them. They'll, they'll bring a curse upon themselves. All right, there you go. That's Balaam. Very interesting character. Not really anyone else like him in the Old Testament. Um, and uh, yeah, there, there you go. He, he had enviable access to the word of the Lord, the presence of God. Uh, the vision of the future, the coming of the Messiah. And um, wanted to get a couple bucks for it. And couldn't seem to shake the, the desire for money. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Uh, Lord, continue to guide us through your word uh, to help us to see the things you want us to see. Lord, I pray that we would not be like Balaam, who uh, couldn't see you standing there because of our own, the desire of his own heart. Lord, I pray that our desire would be to see you in, in the word as we, as we travel through. And, and uh, Lord, that we wouldn't become confused and torn between our own desires and what we know, would think we know about you, uh, but that we would be totally um, sold out for you, Lord, that we would serve not God and money, but, but you alone. And uh, give us pure hearts so that we could see God. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.